It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. As a response to several corporate and accounting scandals in the early 2000s, Congress passed the Sarbanes-Oxley Act in 2002 with bipartisan congressional support. As Sarbanes-Oxley celebrates its platinum anniversary, we'll look at how effective it's been. Joining me is securities law expert James Park, a professor at UCLA Law School. His new book is called The Valuation Treadmill, How Securities Fraud Threatens the Integrity of Public Companies. Jim, tell us about Sarbanes-Oxley. In a nutshell, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley basically says if you're a public corporation with stock that's trading in public markets, you have to invest in measures to prevent securities fraud. So there's a a wide uh, number of provisions that were passed as, as part of the law, and I think some of the more important ones are uh, certification requirements where the CEO and CFO have to basically certify that there are no material misrepresentations in the company's disclosures. A public company also has to establish a system of internal controls um, that will help inform the company's managers about the company's financial condition. And every year they are obligated under Sarbanes-Oxley to evaluate the effectiveness of those internal controls. And then importantly, an uh, independent auditor um, has to review and attest to the management's evaluation of the internal controls. Um, those, to me, are the core provisions of Sarbanes-Oxley as they relate to public companies. And tell us about the reasons for the law, why it was passed. In my view, the law was the culmination of years of securities fraud cases that the SEC basically pursued starting in about 1998 or 1999. And basically towards the end of the 1990s, there was significant pressure on public companies to deliver quarterly results, to meet analyst projections of their revenue and earnings. And many of them were cheating. They were cheating by violating accounting rules so that they could report revenue that was a little bit higher profits that were a little bit higher. And this structural pressure to maintain your valuation, in my view, was the main reason for the law, the best justification for the law. 
you know, in terms of the events that led up to the law, I think it's worth talking about those a little bit. You know, I started practicing law around this time about 20 years ago. And this is a time when security fraud was national news. It was really one of the major national concerns. You have the December 2001 bankruptcy filing of Enron. And then the next month in January of 2002, Global Crossing filed for bankruptcy. That spring in April 2002, Elliot Spitzer brings a major case against Merrill Lynch for issuing false research recommendations with respect to stocks that it was uh, promoting as part of its investment banking business. June 2002, Adelphia filed for bankruptcy. And then what really prompted the passage of the law is July 2002, WorldCom filed for bankruptcy. So you have a string of major public company bankruptcies that really pushes Congress to act. And the law was passed virtually with unanimous uh, approval. And it was a 99 to 0 in the Senate, 423 to 9 in the House. And President George W. Bush, a Republican, signed the law um, on July 30th. Do you think it's worked? Has it been successful? I think it has been successful. It is a tough law, though, to gauge with respect to how well it is working. Um, it's very hard to really measure exactly what the impact of the law has been. Um, but we do have anecdotal evidence where uh, public company managers report that they are more careful, uh, more systematic about investing in internal controls to prevent securities fraud. So we have that sort of qualitative evidence that would support the idea that the law is working. We also have evidence from accounting restatements. Uh, restatements are basically when a company acknowledges that there's a material misrepresentation in its financial statements. And uh, we see accounting restatements of SEC filing companies steadily declining um, over the last 15, 20 years. And in 2006, 17% of SEC filers restated their financial statements. And in 2020, it was 5%. And that may indicate that internal controls are catching some of these mistakes earlier. There may be an upsurge in 2021 with SPACs. There were a lot of SPAC restatements. But after that blip, I expect we might see that trend to continue to fall. The other evidence that it has worked is we have not seen another Enron or WorldCom. We have seen some securities frauds over the last 15 to 20 years by public corporations. But we have not seen as many of them as we saw around that time. And if you look at the data on private securities class action filings, uh, the percentage of those lawsuits that allege a financial misstatement has declined over the last decade or so. Coming up, I'll continue this conversation with UCLA law professor James Park, and we'll talk about how securities fraud threatens the integrity of public companies. This is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. 
The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I've been talking to UCLA law professor James Park. He's got a new book coming out entitled The Valuation Treadmill, How Securities Fraud Threatens the Integrity of Public Companies. Give us the broad outlines. What's your book about? It's a history of securities fraud regulation. And it basically goes from the 1970s until the present. There are a lot of books that look at individual fraud. You know, you think of the book on Enron, Smartest Guys in the Room, really delved into that particular fraud in depth. What I wanted to do was I wanted to see and explore how securities fraud has changed over time. Um, And so I look at five or six major frauds over the decade, each fraud is meant to be representative of a particular period in time. So I start out in the 1970s with the collapse of the Penn Central Railroad. And that was um, a really significant event because before um, that particular scandal, there was sort of a belief that large companies did not commit securities fraud, and that it was really a problem for smaller companies. But when you have the sort of nation's largest railroad filing for bankruptcy, that really shakes the assumption that large companies are not vulnerable to securities fraud. In the 1980s, you have cases against technology companies. Apple, for example, was hit with a $100 million verdict for its failed Lisa computer. And that case raised a lot of similar issues as we saw in the Theranos case recently with Elizabeth Holmes. At what point do you say, that a product has failed and to what extent is a failure to reveal the failure of a product fraudulent to investors. Um, Of course, I talk about Enron and a lot of the cases around that period, such as the Xerox uh, accounting fraud, which was the first time the SEC imposed a substantial civil penalty on a public corporation. And then I talk about the financial crisis of 2008. Why were there not more security fraud cases filed after that crisis? And then I move to the present and talk about how security fraud theories are now being applied 
in the ESG context, when there's an ESG disaster, there's often allegations of securities fraud. So I really try to walk the reader through um, the decades and explain how securities fraud has changed and evolved over time as a problem for public corporations. Has securities fraud gotten more sophisticated as, you know, technology has improved? Or is it the same old, same old? It has evolved. It has changed in many respects. And, you know, if you look at the more recent securities frauds that we're seeing, they are not like the Enrons and WorldComs. They are doing things that are more subtle than violating accounting rules. They are changing operational decisions in certain ways to generate additional cash flow in ways that are facially legal, but could be deceptive to investors. At the end of 2020, the SEC filed a, a big case against General Electric. General Electric, as you may know, revealed massive losses about five years ago in various businesses that investors were very surprised at. And you know, once the losses were revealed, the value of the company declined by an amount greater than the combined value of Enron and WorldCom. And what the SEC discovers is they're they're not really violating accounting rules, but they are doing things like selling more and more of their receivables in order to generate cash flow now to create the appearance that their businesses are strong when in fact they were weak. And so this is a bit more of a subtle type of securities fraud that we see in that case. Another example of this type of earnings management fraud is Under Armour. They basically were trying to maintain the appearance that they were growing every year by about 15%. So one of the ways they tried to create the appearance of such growth is that if they had to hit a certain number at the end of a quarter, they would ask their customers to take product early, product they had ordered later on. They asked them to accept it early so they could count it as revenue right away. And so that technically does not violate accounting rules, but it does create a deceptive portrayal of the company's condition and prospects. So we've seen a recent collapse in technology stock prices. Will that lead us to the next Enron or WorldCom? Very possible. You know, securities frauds tend to be revealed in bad times because um, at some point you're not able to maintain the fiction that your company is not performing as well as you have been portraying it as performing. And if you think about another recent event in the news, the Elon Musk and Twitter battle, in some ways, he's alleging that Twitter has committed a type of security fraud against him. Um, he's saying that their published estimate of spam accounts is too low um, and that he was essentially misled into buying this company that has you know, a higher percentage of fake accounts, which might affect your assessment of their future prospects. Now, I personally don't think that this is a strong argument. The real reason why Twitter stock prices declined is that, you know, with interest rates rising because the Fed's trying to head off inflation, that means that valuations of companies with future earnings tend to go down. But you know, this is a type of securities fraud argument that uh, Musk is asserting, partly because he wants to get out of the deal. And I think the reason he wants to get out of the deal is because he um, has offered to pay too much for Twitter. Um, and so I expect that we will 
start seeing more securities fraud if the market keeps going down and the economy keeps deteriorating. Is the enforcement of the securities laws rigorous enough? Is it heading off problems? It's always a, a great question. And, you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission does the best that it can with its limited resources. I think it could always use more resources. They have been fairly active in bringing cases. And I think they have, you know, just in the last month or so filed some good cases, some interesting cases. But in my view, it's only a small fraction of the fraud that is actually happening that the SEC has the ability to really investigate and bring a case against. I do think that private investors and their attorneys who are bringing securities class actions play an important role in enforcing the law against securities fraud, and they are often very active. Um, One other thing that has helped, and this is part of Sarbanes-Oxley, is the protection for whistleblowers within the company, as well as the incentives to come forward, which are put in in place by Dodd-Frank. I think that's been very helpful to the Securities and Exchange Commission in finding securities fraud. And it deters securities fraud as well, because um, if you know that your employees have incentives to report fraud, that might make it more difficult to actually commit a fraud. And so I think that the system has improved over the last 20 years and that regulation um, has addressed securities fraud in, in many ways. But I do suspect that we are not catching all of it. Is there any way to quantify how much Is it 40% more, 50% more than they've caught? It's hard to quantify. I I suspect that there are a lot of questionable practices that just never come to light because, you know, a, a company might, you know, have questionable accounting, but no one ever really discovers it because the company ends up doing pretty well for other reasons. So I think that, you know, I, I would guess that maybe at most we're catching half of it. I think that's just a very rough, rough guess. I think there are a lot of other questionable practices that you don't really know about it until there's some crisis at the company or a whistleblower finds it. You know, and part of the thesis of the book is that there's always this pressure on public companies to commit securities fraud because they are always pressured to deliver short-term results. And I do think a lot of companies resist the pressure and temptation and are honest and they do report accurate financial results and issue correct disclosures. Um, But there are a lot of others, I think, that give in to the pressure, and we may not discover all of them. Is there a lesson that you want readers to take away after reading your book? You know, I think the main point to tie it back to Sarbanes-Oxley is that, you know, there's a good reason we have Sarbanes-Oxley. I think that's the one point I'm trying to make in the book, that securities fraud is a structural problem. You know, one perception is that it's just bad people who commit securities fraud from time to time, people who are trying to trade on inside information, people who are trying to sell their stock before the company collapses. And I I think that is an important part of securities fraud. But, you know, to me, what's more interesting is when otherwise law-abiding executives deceive investors. And I think they do so because there's a structural pressure on public companies that we see in modern times. And Sarbanes-Oxley has been criticized quite a bit over the years. It's costly. It's 
um, reduces the incentive of companies to go public. And um, Congress has tried to implement various laws to try to reduce the cost, but it is still somewhat of a deterrent to being a public corporation. And so I think we continually have to justify a law that basically says if you're a public corporation, you have to spend significant amounts in preventing securities fraud. And I think that this book makes the case that Sarbanes-Oxley is a necessary law for all public corporations because securities fraud is a threat to all public corporations. Thanks for being on the show, Jim. That's UCLA law professor James Park. The book is called The Valuation Treadmill, How Securities Fraud Threatens the Integrity of Public Companies. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.